The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World Episode 41, The Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa The south of the modern country of Spain may have been one of the last places of Neanderthal occupation before the area became exclusively occupied by Homo sapiens and the various Stone Age cultures. Occupation of the Iberian Peninsula following the Neolithic Revolution is very evident at sites such as Marroquíes Bajos near the modern city of Jaén, which demonstrates a sedentary and developed agricultural society. The site of this episode's battle is around 35 miles north of Jaén. It's also around 150 miles south of the modern Spanish capital, Madrid. From around 4,000 years ago, the people of the area became quite advanced miners and metal workers, as well as producing large amounts of ceramics and pottery. By 3,000 years ago, Celtic peoples from Central Europe had migrated into the Iberian Peninsula and gave birth to the unique fusion culture of the Celt-Iberians. During the first millennium BCE, Phoenician traders would establish trading colonies along the coasts of the southeast of the Iberian Peninsula. Greek city-states would also try to establish trading colonies too, but the first major invasion of the south of the peninsula was by the Carthaginians, themselves a product of the Phoenician Mediterranean trading colonies. Carthage was established by the Phoenicians in North Africa, so the journey was comparatively short. Initially, the Carthaginians were comfortable controlling the southern coastal lands, and they did so for many generations. It was not until the power of the Romans brought them directly into competition with the Carthaginians that the Carthaginians looked to take control of as much of the peninsula as possible. Eventually the Romans would come and they would successfully remove the Carthaginians from the peninsula entirely. The Romans would effectively control the peninsula for the next 600 years. At the beginning of the 5th century, the Roman Empire began to weaken and Germanic tribes crossed the Rhine in Central Europe and cascaded into Gaul and then southwards into Hispania, the Roman provinces of the Iberian Peninsula. Firstly, the Vandals and the Alans occupied the southern lands on the peninsula. The Romans, supported by the Visigoths, fought back, pushing the barbarians out of these lands before the Suebi, a Germanic tribe who had settled in the northeast of the peninsula pushed the Romans out of southern Hispania again. The collapse of the Western Roman Empire enabled the Visigoths to be able to move into Hispania on Rome's behalf, but this ultimately meant that the Visigoths were now in control of Hispania. The Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian ruled from Constantinople in the 6th century and his goal was to restore the former glory of the Roman Empire. And this would include an attempt to reconquer Hispania. He successfully took control of the south of the peninsula, creating the Byzantine province of Spania. The remoteness of the province from the capital city of Constantinople meant that it was difficult to maintain and the Visigoths successfully pushed the Byzantines who were the Eastern Romans, off of the peninsula during the first half of the 7th century. In the 8th century, a major invasion came from across the Strait of Gibraltar in the shape of a branch of the Umayyad Caliphate, who emanated from the Middle East and travelled the width of North Africa before crossing to the Iberian Peninsula, bringing Islam to the Iberian Peninsula for the first time. 
the Umayyads established an independent caliphate based at the city of, of Cordoba. While the displaced Visigoths were pinned into a small area in the far north of the peninsula, which would become the kingdom of Asturias. While the Islamic Cordobans brought advanced academia and sciences to the Iberian Peninsula, the kingdom of Asturias, a Christian kingdom, sought to expand its humble borders. It was successful in doing so, and it was necessary to divide itself into counties where governorship could be localised. Over time, these counties would vie for power over each other, creating a complex and ever-changing relationship of kingdoms and counties that were sometimes allied and sometimes opposed to each other. One of the counties was called Castile, and Castile would have a very important role to play in the future of the peninsula, including at the battle of this episode. The Kingdom of Castile Castile started out as an eastern borderland of the Kingdom of Asturias, which was established by the remnants of the Christian Kingdom of the Visigoths since the arrival of the Umayyads in the Iberian Peninsula and the establishment of the land that has been referred to as Al-Andalus, the Muslim territory of the Iberian Peninsula. Castile somewhat gets its name from the fact that it was heavily fortified as a result of it being a borderland to the lands that were often being competed for. Originally, as a part of Asturias, it was a county and not a kingdom. It appears that Castile was originally a collection of small jurisdictions with a common cultural and linguistic connection and it would not be until the 9th century that a county appears to have resembled a united county governed by one count called Rodrigo. Up until this point, as a county of Asturias, the local leaders in Castile would be selected by higher Asturian authorities. Castile would not have a fully autonomous status until the 10th century though. Under the Count Fernán González, Castile rose in power against its suzerain state, León, which was the central lands of what had been the Kingdom of Asturias. León had weakened during the lifetime of Fernán González and therefore he was able to take advantage of the political situation to raise the profile of Castile. There would also be some expansion into Muslim territories. By the 11th century, Castile had attained a level that was politically comparable to the surrounding kingdoms of Leon and of Navarre to its east. The king of Navarre, Sancho III, annexed Castile from Leon and then awarded it to his son, who would establish Castile as a kingdom in its own right and rule it as King Ferdinand I. Ferdinand would also assume rule over the kingdom of Leon and the two kingdoms would be intertwined with each other but the population still identified themselves as Leonese or Castilian and there were underlying elements of distrust between the two with both kingdoms looking to be the suzerain of the other. During the 11th century, Al-Andalus, the collective name for the Muslim territories of the Iberian Peninsula, fragmented into small taifas. This allowed the collective Christian kingdom of Leon and Castile to play the Muslim taifas off against each other, and it would also allow the Christian kingdoms to annex Muslim territory, with the most important conquest being that of Toledo, which meant that the size of the Christian territory was no longer dwarfed by its Muslim neighbours, as it had been since the Umayyad invasion of the Visigoths way back in the 8th century. The two kingdoms of Castile and Leon separated from each other during the 12th century. 
Almohads. Since the 8th century, a considerable presence of Islamic authorities had existed in the Iberian Peninsula since the Umayyad invasion of the peninsula in the year 711. The Muslim territories were collectively called Al-Andalus and the Umayyads established an emirate centred at the city of Cordoba in the year 756. Ideological differences with the Abbasid Caliphate based in Baghdad would lead to the Cordobans declaring themselves as a caliphate in their own right during the 10th century. The 10th century was a golden age for the Cordobans, with great advances in academia, architecture and military, which saw Cordoba overshadow the successor Christian counties and states of the Kingdom of Asturias, including Castile and Leon. The 11th century saw the collapse of the Caliphate of Cordoba as the local rulers in Al-Andalus looked to protect their own fortunes and this would allow the growing power of the Christian kingdoms in the north of the peninsula to muscle its way into the politics of these smaller administrative Islamic taifas. Many of the taifas were made subject to their more powerful Christian neighbours and the Christian kingdoms began to expand their areas of influence, shifting the balance of power in the Iberian Peninsula more in favour of the Christian realms than the Islamic ones. One of the most pivotal moments came in the year 1085. An important Islamic taifa in the centre of the peninsula was one based at the city of Toledo. The king of Leon was Alfonso VI, and he would make a move on the city of Toledo after being invited to assist in its defence against rebels to the ruler of Toledo. Alfonso took the opportunity to besiege and capture Toledo for himself, and would therefore gain the wealth and the strategical significance of the lands in the centre of the peninsula. The pendulum of dominance during the Reconquista now favoured the Christian realms. The gradual collapse of the Muslim provinces of Al-Andalus caused a collective cry for help across the Strait of Gibraltar to the powerful Almoravids, who had recently taken power and acquired a significant area of land in the Maghreb centred at the city of Marrakesh. The Almoravids were a Berber dynasty that was based on the adherence to a specific Islamic religious code rather than a family bloodline. When they crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, it became clear that their intention was to conquer the Al-Andalus lands for themselves, believing that the Iberian Taifas had grown impious by comparison to the holy discipline of the Almoravids. The Mozarabic populations of Al-Andalus were not comfortable with the more strict regime of the Almoravids. The Mozarabs were the Christian populations that had lived for centuries under Muslim rule in Al-Andalus. A programme of Christian reprisals against the Almoravids and subsequent reintegrating of Mozarabs back into Christian society started taking place and the balance of power moved back towards the Christian realms after the powerful invasion of the Almoravids. The primary concern for the Almoravids was coming from back in Africa. A movement emerged in the Atlas Mountains that would challenge the authority of the Almoravids. The movement was led by a man called Ibn Tumart, who proclaimed himself as the Mahdi, an important figure in Islam who would appear before Jesus would lead the Muslims to world conquest. Ibn Tumart would promote a Puritan version of Islam and would lead his followers, the Almohads, into challenging the Almoravids in the Maghreb. In the year 1145, a number of years after the lifetime of Ibn Tumat, his successor, Abd al-Mumin, would instigate a forceful expansion of the Almohads from their heartlands in the Atlas Mountains, and by 1147, they had taken the Almoravid capital at Marrakesh.
This meant the end of centralised Almoravid rule as they fled to other Almoravid-held lands such as Al-Andalus. The Almohads pressed on, attempting to secure more Almoravid territories. When the Almohads crossed into Al-Andalus, some of the Almoravids would even appeal to King Alfonso VII of Leon for support. This was in the aftermath of the call to arms of the Second Crusade by Pope Eugene III, which not only led to the crusade of King Louis VII of France and King Conrad III of Germany to the Holy Land, but also a collective Christian push against the Almoravid Taifas in Al-Andalus. King Alfonso VII was a central part of this crusader movement, but now a new threat had emerged in the Almohads that was both a threat to the lands of Leon and the lands of the Almoravids. This support was not enough for the Almoravids who would be run out of the mainland Spain by the Almohads, and the Almohads now set their sights on the Christian kingdoms. King Alfonso VIII of Castile Despite being a defender of the Christian realms, King Alfonso VII of Leon was unable to push back against the advancing Almohads. Alfonso VII died while travelling back to Toledo during preparations for the Almohad aggressions. But Alfonso had also done something quite controversial before his death. He had declared that on his death, the crown of Leon be passed down to his son Ferdinand, and the crown of Castile, previously held by the King of Leon, be passed down to his other son Sancho. The Castilian population had always viewed themselves as ethnically Castilian, so Alfonso may have believed this move to be for the best to prevent tension between the two kingdoms and to prevent tension between his sons. However, some criticise this as a devolution of power of the Christian kingdom in the face of the powerful Almohad invasion of Al-Andalus. Sancho, in his early 20s, now became King Sancho III of Castile, which was also responsible for the kingdom of Toledo. After just one year, Sancho was dead, and the crown of Castile passed to his two-year-old son, Alfonso, who would become King Alfonso VIII of Castile. This prompted a great wave of civil unrest as the Castilian noble families clamoured for the right to control the regency of the kingdom. Two of the more powerful Castilian families, the Castro and the Lara, took to the battlefield on more than one occasion to try and win control of the infant king. The Navarrese to the east of Castile would take advantage of the unrest to steal some of the borderlands of the Castilians. But when Alfonso did finally come of age, he married into the powerful English royal family, who at the time were in control of a large Angevin empire which stretched as far south as Aquitaine and was enough for Alfonso to take back some of those stolen borderlands. Alfonso proved to be a canny ruler, whose long rule brought about cultural improvements and allowed Castile to begin to overshadow its Leonese neighbours. Alfonso also recognised that tensions between the Christian kingdoms would only debilitate them against the aggressions of the Almohads in the south and sought to strike up treaties that would determine the division of Al-Andalus in the event of a unified invasion and conquest of these lands. If Castile could rely on the cooperation of Aragon, Leon, Navarre and Portugal, then the stand against the Almohads would be so much easier. A truce had existed between Alfonso and the Almohads, but when the truce had expired and the succession of the Almohad rulership was being debated in Marrakesh in 1194, Alfonso chose to invade Almohad Seville with the support of the Order of Calatrava, a Castilian military order that had been blessed by papal approval. 
The Almohads were now under the rule of a man called Yaqub al-Mansur, who earned this name as a result of his response to Alfonso's invasion. He came back from Marrakesh to Al-Andalus to confront the Castilians and in the resulting battle of Alarcos, Al-Mansur scored a crushing victory over the forces of Alfonso. The defeat would send waves of concern throughout the Christian kingdoms. If Alfonso may have previously seemed powerful and the right man to stand up in the face of the Almohads, now the opinions were different. The Order of Calatrava, who operated with the blessing of the Pope, had lost their fortress at Calatrava to the Almohads as a consequence of this defeat. The Kingdom of Leon would look to form a political alliance with the Almohads to prevent further repercussions. With every great battle on the Iberian Peninsula during the medieval period, even though the victories would establish the political situation going forward, it would be quite a debilitating experience for the parties involved. Even though the Almohads had scored this great victory, they couldn't do much in the direct aftermath to capitalise and push further onwards into Christian territory. Yaqub al-Mansur chose to return to Africa where he effectively retired from military campaigns in Al-Andalus. Muhammad al-Nasir Yaqub al-Mansur passed away early in the year 1199 and his son Muhammad al-Nasir was proclaimed the new Almohad Caliph immediately. His father's achievements in Al-Andalus meant that there were no great waves of aggression to be concerned about there, so he was able to turn his attention to African issues instead. Since the rise of the Almohads earlier on in the 12th century, the Almoravids had been decentralised and scattered. The Almohads had stretched their African realm eastwards, something that the Almoravids had failed to do. They had now taken control of the modern lands of Tunisia, contemporarily known as Ifriqiya, from the Normans back in the 1150s. However, an Almoravid tribe called the Banu Ghania had become a major challenge to the Almohads in this area, and this was a problem that Muhammad al-Nasir inherited at the start of his reign. Muhammad al-Nasir was successful in retrieving Ifriqiya, but the Banu Ghania were not about to give up on their claim to these lands, so Al-Nasir instated the Hafsids as the local governors there, so that he may turn his attention to the developments that were leading to an inevitable conflict in Al-Andalus. Muhammad Al-Nasir was keen to impose his will on the Christian neighbours of Al-Andalus, and so he amassed an army and crossed from Africa back to Al-Andalus in the year 1211. Al-Nasir would invade Christian territory and take another fortified stronghold called Salvatierra Castle from the Order of Calatrava, just as his father had done at the end of the previous century. Prelude to the Battle Muhammad al-Nasir may have attacked Salvatierra Castle in response to continued Castilian raids across the understood border. The capture of Salvatierra Castle from the Order of Calatrava was a hugely disconcerting event for all of the Christian kingdoms of Hispania. This would prompt the Pope Innocent III to become involved. Innocent was arguably the most secularly influential pope of the medieval age, as in many European realms he would dictate who would be the bishops, which marriages would be blessed or annulled, which kings would be excommunicated, and even in some cases which kings would be appointed. When Innocent heard of the loss of Salvatierra Castle, he called for a crusade against the Almohads. Crusades are often thought of as being against the Muslims in the Holy Land, but they would more accurately be described as military movements against any enemies of Latin Christendom. 
In the previous century, Latin Christians had taken Constantinople from the Byzantines, with the Byzantines themselves actually being Christian, albeit Greek Orthodox. This was also not the first time that a Christian crusade had seen action in Al-Andalus, with the Christian kingdoms of Hispania competing against the Almoravids during the previous century as part of the wider Second Crusade. The three kingdoms of Castile, Navarre and Aragon clubbed together. Leonese and Portuguese knights gathered to join the crusade, but knights would also come from further afield such as France, Germany and Italy. Orders of knights would also gather together with the Iberian Crusaders to join the embarrassed Order of Calatrava such as the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller. The Christian factions did not all see eye to eye in general, but they rallied to the cause in the face of this Islamic threat. The Christian armies gathered together in Toledo and they marched south towards the Sierra Morena mountain range, where they were aware that the Almohads were approaching in the opposite direction. The Almohads set up camp in order to wait for the Christian coalition to appear and rout them with their superior numbers. So the Christians, led by King Alfonso VIII, had a problem. The Christians took the strategically important fortress of Castillo de Castro Ferral within the mountains which would give them a good defensible lookout point. But they needed to find and attack the Almohad camp. The fortress was close to the Despeñaperros Pass through the Sierra Morena and Mohammed al-Nasir was ready for the emergence of the Christians when they would finally advance through the pass. However, it seems that some good fortune befell King Alfonso VIII in the form of a local shepherd. Whether this be divine intervention, sheer good fortune or just the stuff of retrospective legend, a shepherd, possibly named Martin Alaja, showed King Alfonso VIII an alternative pass through the mountains that would lead to an area behind the Almohad camp. The Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa The number of Almohad warriors was suggested by sources to be around 300,000, but this doesn't seem consistent with typical army sizes for this period, and historians doubt that this number is correct, suggesting that it may have been superior to the approximately 13,000 strong Christian coalition army, but not much more than double the size perhaps. Alfonso was at the centre of the formation, with King Pedro II of Aragon commanding the left wing, and King Sancho VII of Navarre commanding the right wing. Muhammad al-Nasir was stationed in his personal tent within the Almohad camp, protected by his personal guards. The Christian coalition charged the Almohads, with the Almohads now having to defend their position. The Christians had seized the initiative by slipping behind the camp, and the rush of troops meant that archers were ineffective. The battle was now a mass melee being fought at close quarters. A combination of lances, swords and battle axes were being aggressively thrown against opponents. Those that had lost their weapons were fighting barehanded. A Spanish military order, similar in its nature to that of the Order of Calatrava, was involved in the melee. They were the Order of Santiago, a military order whose creation was claimed by both the Leonese and the Castilians. It was the knights from the Order of Santiago who were able to achieve the breakthrough of the Almohad line and create a gap that the right-wing commander King Sancho VII of Navarre was able to exploit. The Navarrese would head straight for the tent of Muhammad al-Nasir 
and gradually overpower his personal guard. The time had now arrived for al-Nasir to escape this disaster and so he fled the battlefield while the Christian coalition continued to slaughter the disorganised Almohads. When the fighting was over and the Almohads had either fled or been slaughtered, the Christians took the tent and the standard of al-Nasir as trophies of their victory. Aftermath. Before the battle, Christian raiders had been attacking Al-Andalus. Muhammad al-Nazir was obliged to deal with this situation, and he failed to do so. The victory for the Christians was certainly not expected, and when King Alfonso VIII contacted Pope Innocent III to proclaim a great victory against the Almohads, the message would be sent alongside the tent of Muhammad al-Nasir. The great belief installed in the Castilians gave them a new wave of confidence in order to take control of more Muslim strongholds on the borderlands between the Christians and the Muslims. Muhammad al-Nasir returned to Marrakesh in shame, defeated by King Alfonso VIII, a man who was a generation older than him. It would be the following year, 1213, that al-Nazir would die, having just reached his thirties. We have no detail of his death, but the turn of events would have certainly taken a lot of the Almohad confidence away from him and may have prompted movements against his rule. In the following year, 1214, after some successful campaigns in the wake of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, King Alfonso VIII died, but the legacy of his achievements had restored Castilian confidence and paved the way for the Christians to take advantage of the weakening of the Almohads and really shine a positive light on the ongoing Reconquista. The King of Navarre, Sancho VII, lived on into his 70s before passing away in the year 1234. Sancho lived with the reputation of being the difference maker at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, and Navarre was strengthened as a result of his rule through his diplomatic intelligence, which would help to establish treaties with other nations. The Almohads were never really the same after this point in time as dynastic struggles debilitated the centralisation of the state and its fate would be similar to that of the Almoravids before them. Never again would they threaten the Christian nations as they had done previously. Their army had been heavily depleted by the events at Las Navas de Tolosa and the balance of power in the story of the Reconquista was now unquestionably in the favour of the Christian states. The victory is often attributed to the help of this mysterious shepherd called Martin Alaja, who may have placed a cow's skull on the ground to help to show the way to King Alfonso VIII's army. Martin Alaja's name has also been mentioned in connection with the fall of the city of Cuenca to the Christians back in the year 1177, as the man who helped the Christians, disguised as sheep, breached the city walls. Although it does seem that Martin Alaja's name doesn't appear in contemporary documents, but only in later ones, so that raises the question about whether he even existed at all. Stories exist about how he saw a vision of the Virgin Mary, encouraging him to assist the Christians. The story of the cow's skull led to him being awarded the honorific title Gabetha de Vaca, which translates in English to cow's head, and became a surname in the Spanish language, especially remembered for the new world explorer of the early 16th century, Alva Nunes Cabeza de Vaca, who was an important member of the first European politics in both the North and the South of the Americas. (music) 
Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. And uh, it's a follow-on from last week's episode, the introduction of the Reconquista, the earliest centuries of the uh, of the battles between the Christians and the Moors. This week's episode was a continuation of that from the days of El Cid through to the Almoravids and the Almohads. Next week, um, we're going to be looking at um, the Battle of Rio Salado, which is a continuation. Actually, I say next week... Um, we we are actually going to take a little break for, for two or three weeks. So we'll be back around Christmas with that episode. So it won't be next week. So I apologise for that. Uh, but a few things of uh, I need to take care of uh, personally that will, uh, will prevent me from publishing a couple of uh, episodes for, for the next couple of weeks. But there will be unscripted episodes. And then hopefully within two to three weeks, we'll be back to producing full episodes. But yes, the next episode will be the continuation of the Reconquista uh, in the Iberian Peninsula during the medieval period. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup is a competition uh, created by the History of the World podcast uh, for those of you who engage with our social media platforms. So that might be Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And uh, each week we're having a different matchup between two of our ancient teams. Um, and uh, this week uh, the match was a last 16 encounter between the Romans and the Minoans. And what you've been doing is all week you've been voting for which one of these two teams you want to progress to the next round. And you've been voting on the History of the World podcast Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook uh, fan group for the History of the World podcast. Um, you've been voting on Twitter and on Instagram. We had 64 votes for this week's match. Uh, it was between the Romans, uh, those huge, uh, those huge players in this in this ancient World Cup. Um, real, they their reputation precedes them, doesn't it? It's uh, well, what can we say about the Romans? Um, such a, a vast amount of history and and uh, technological dominance, let's say. Uh, military dominance um, and uh, political dominance uh, of their period, and then also they were playing against the Minoans, who are who are stylized as the first uh, proper culture of Europe, and uh, based on the island of Crete, and who give us those wonderful uh, ancient uh, sites such as Knossos. Um, the the votes were counted, 64 votes, and uh, the winners with uh, 67%, a very strong victory, and going through to the quarterfinals to play against the Sumerians are the Romans. So uh, the quarterfinals will be the Sumerians versus the Romans. We say goodbye to the Minoans, unfortunately. And the ancient World Cup will return, I think, on the 26th of December. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast, then you can definitely rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. But also you can click on the Patreon link on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You can make it for as little or as much as you like. And uh, when you sign up, you, you, be, you get the distinction of becoming a member of the History of the World podcast, uh, uh, a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And that is a lifelong distinction. So that's uh, our gratitude to you for your generous contributions. And of course, uh, you can uh, get rewards. And what is unusual about the History of the World podcast is on Patreon, we don't oblige you to sign up to a particular monthly uh, contribution in order to gain certain rewards. We treat it as milestones, so if you contribute the right amount of money over any length of time, you will qualify for those rewards, and it can be such things as commissioning your own uh, episode on the subject of your choice. Uh, it could be uh, hot drinks, mugs, T-shirts. It can be key rings, fridge magnets, uh, and it can even just be a question answered at the end of a podcast episode. Uh, this week, we uh, welcome Dee Tugman into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Now, I have a little confession to make. Um, I didn't realise this, but 
a lot of the contacts being made to the History of the World podcast through the website itself have been falling into uh, my spam folder, which is no good at all. So I've been missing messages pretty much for the whole month of November. So anyone that has written in and is wondering why I'm just blanking their email or, or not even reading it out on air, it's not, I didn't even realise I was receiving them. I must apologise. And it did feel a bit strange because um, last month I was thinking to myself, well, what? I'm getting a lack of messages here. That's unusual compared to other months. And and now I've discovered why. So I need to catch up with all the people that have written in. Uh, Devin has uh, written in, or Devin, I apologise. But I recently found your show and I have thoroughly enjoyed it so far. I'm only up to episode 15 of volume one, but I came across something I think you will really like. You may already be aware of it, but it is a site in California where it is believed they found evidence of people living there as early as 150,000 years ago. Obviously, this really changes what we previously thought. Here's a link to a YouTube video about it. Enjoy it. Well, it's about Ceruti Mastodon, which is a site, um, I believe, in California, as, as you've stated, Devin. Um where they have found mastodon bones which appear to have been manipulated by human hand and like it's got all the hallmarks of being manipulated by human hand but there's a massive question mark over this site and 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 such a lot to you know there's two sides to this one where there's such a lot to state that it could have been human kind that was there uh it, it there's there's a lack of evidence that we would expect to find um to suggest that humans were there that's the biggest problem but then also of course we cannot just assume that homo sapiens are the only wave of humans to ever go into the americas and um perhaps there was a wave of humans that went in there and and died out we just don't know um that's the fun of archaeology and looking uh, for the answers um and so very interesting indeed when we look at things like this i i I sometimes uh, I know um, uh, Kaylee During, who who hosts the uh, the YouTube channel um, History with Kaylee. Um, she's fascinated by all of this ancient, um, or I should say, prehistoric um, think, news, prehistoric news, let's say, or archaeological news, and and she often uh, makes videos that concentrate on particular finds. And she has done a video on on Ceruti mastodon uh which in which she does her very best which she always does very well to give a, a balanced view of uh of the site so you know i always recommend her work as well she's a very very good historian uh independent just like me so um so yeah check out her sort of uh, her opinion of the site as well um also i mean you like it always reminds me when we're looking at sites like this is it can Add a, add a layer of credibility to claims made by um, historians uh, such as Graham Hancock, who um, is responsible for the Netflix series um, Ancient Apocalypse. Um, you know, Graham has quite an, an aggressive attitude towards archaeologists as if they're against him. Um, it's just really he knows that he, he, he must realise that he is... Um, you know, quite left field uh, compared to the mainstream theories and uh, that he's going to be challenged. But it's certainly that the archaeological, you know, he sort of portrays the archaeological um, academics as being against him or there's a collective conspiracy against him. And I don't really believe that that's the case. But um, certainly sites like this um, often you know, open up questions which Graham Hancock will readily answer things like that. So, um, but, you know, I would always say don't be dismissive of Graham Hancock's work. He, he has a point of view that's based on his own thoughts and theories. And um, until we can disprove um, him, then his opinion is just as valid as anybody's. And uh, it's just a case, once again, Graham Hancock has an opinion just as you and I have an opinion as well. So you may agree or disagree with him or you may agree or disagree with me. Um, that's the beauty of prehistory is that we can all get involved. So 
Um, thanks for the message. It's uh, you know very very interesting to discuss things like that, and uh, really appreciate it, Devin. Thank you. Raphael was written in and said, Hi, "Hello, Chris. How are you doing? I finally make myself some time to write to you to comment a few things and ask about some other stuff." Firstly, thank you so, so much for this massive project you're into. I'm doing a very boring mechanical job and I started about six months ago to listen to history-related podcasts and documentaries. I truly look forward every day to do my job, not because of it, but because of history. As many, I got to know your podcast thanks to the study of antiquity and mid- uh, medieval. It's actually called the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages channel on YouTube. And I've been listening to your podcast regularly since as a backbone of my formation. I did commit a bit of treason by following specific podcasts for ancient Greek and Roman history, but mostly I find your detailed podcast as an excellent column I always come back to. So again, thank you. I'm currently at the end of Volume 3 and I'll take some distance while exploring bits of classic and, uh, and ancient history that got my attention before and I'd like to know better. Finally... I've got a question for you. Do you know if there's any website or app where historical events are pinpointed on a map? I've done some research and I find nothing quite like that. And I thought, who better than you to know of its existence? If it does exist, finally, I'd like to say, even though I usually skip the ends of your episodes to go straight for the main dish of the next one, I find it amazing the level of gratitude and recognition you dedicate to your listeners. And please never change it. I hope soon I'll be able to make a small Financial contribution for your efforts. All the best, Raphael. Well, Raphael, it's um, it's great that you've taken the time to read that message. Um, you know, and and the irony is you might not get to hear it because you skipped the end of the episode. So, um, I'm sorry if you don't get to hear it, and uh, you know, I'm sorry you won't uh, in turn be able to hear my apology uh, for you not being able to hear it. So, um, but anyway, yes, very interesting. Um, and, and I always think of myself as a, um, you know, as the gatekeeper, let, let's say to, to further study. So yes, I'm not surprised that you would listen to my project and then want to listen to more detailed and more, um, more subject specific, uh, works and podcasts. So of course, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, thank you very much, Raphael. In, re- in response, I don't really know if there's a, a website out there that exists that will, you can pinpoint historical events on a map, but certainly I own books of that kind of thing. So Paragon have made a history uh, or historical atlas of the world um, that's a really decent book. And um, good old DK books have published uh, a history of the world map by map, which I would probably recommend is is the sort of thing you're looking for. There's nothing better than a good book, is there, that you can shove in the bookshelf, uh, in my opinion anyway, better than a website. Uh, Jeremy Chamberlain has written in uh, saying, Hey, Chris, I want, just want to let you know I'm still avidly listening uh, to knock it out as fast as I can. Uh, you may not be able to consider me a veteran because I only found you this year, but you can definitely call me devoted. Uh, well, thank you, Jeremy. Very kind of you to write in. That's a, a nice message. Uh, Robert Fowler has written in and said, love your podcast listening yesterday. Episode 39 went silent at about the 36-minute mark. Hope you will fix. Thanks. Yes, there was a problem with episode 39. Um, I saved um, the bulk of my work and um, I left a little sound bite about uh, eight minutes after the end of the uh, after the end of my my chit chat, and um, as such, the, the the second part of the episode uh, was uh, you know, was preceded by an, an eight minute silence, and uh, but I fixed it now. So look, but just thank you, you Robert. You're the only one to have uh, written in and pointed it out to me. So the other two, you know, two point eight thousand listeners didn't even bother telling me. So. God bless you, Robert. Thank you very much. Matt Gebhardt has written in and said, Chris, I'm new to the podcast and have so far listened intently to the first 20 shows. Your dedication to accuracy is only surpassed by your efforts to share an incredible amount of humanity's struggle and achievement. I admire your work and I look forward to catching up and following you as you present our shared journey. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Matt. Very nice message. Um, Bill Mullen has written in and written hi Chris I'm a little late to the party but stumbled across uh, the podcast on Spotify I just have to tell you that it is an amazing body of work that you put together thank you for rekindling the thirst for knowledge Bill thank you for taking the time to 
write that message to me very kind and then rob Steele was written in and said just started listening to the podcast after finding it on spotify just wanted to say i'm loving it and i appreciate all the hard work you put into making it thanks well thank you very much to you as well rob very quickly before i sign off for another week um Music 0987A from the United States of America has reviewed us with a five-star review. Thank you so much. You've put a fun guy to listen to and a good storyteller. Well, thank you very much, Music 0987A. Uh, That's it for this week. Um, It took all of my breath to read all of that out, so hopefully I won't make the same mistake again and watch all these messages go into spam and have to read them all out at once. But thank you so much for listening. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to take a, a break for a couple of weeks and I apologise for that. There will be unscripted episodes to keep you going, but maybe in two to three weeks we'll be back with the, the resumption of the story of the Reconquista and the Battle of Rio Salado. Um, so thanks for bearing with me. Is it very difficult to publish a weekly episode at the moment? It sort of, you know, it just sort of goes over a week. The 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 work that I have to do to publish each episode, but I'm determined to keep publishing them um, at a good rate so that we actually get to the end of this project. Uh, so I don't want to slow down the production, but unfortunately, it's going to have to be breaks uh, every now and then during the year just so I can sort of keep up. Um, so I apologise for that but it won't be long before the next episode and don't forget to tune in for the uh, unscripted episode next week and also don't forget to be good The History of the World Podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.